Uh, good morning, everyone. Once again. Okay. Um, quick introduction to myself. Uh, my name is Michael Ticharewa, um, and I will be the chair for this session, or the moderator for this session, which is a session on IFRIS 9, challenges and lessons. So I must declare I'm not an expert in IFRIS 9 stuff. The experts are here. So we are going to have a few questions that we are going to ask um, as we go along. Yeah. So maybe before we start, uh, I'm, I'm going to allow our panelists to introduce themselves. Um, so we have got um, Karsten Kirchen sitting right there. Then uh, he's from NetBank. Then we have got uh, Nico, is it Nico van Staden from FNB. Then we have got Held van Eck, is that right? From KPMG. And then we have got uh, Matthew Walker, Matt, Matt Walker, he calls himself, from Deloitte. So I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves more fully, you know, individually, and then we can get into the session. Okay, thank you. So um, we start there with you, Karsten. Thanks, Michael. I hope everyone can hear me. Yeah, as Michael said, my name is Karsten Gierken. Uh, my academic background is that I studied um, mathematics and economics in Germany, and um, then worked for a couple of years for KPMG, also in Germany, as a consultant, and then moved on to a smaller risk management consultancy. And eight years ago, I joined NetBank in the group risk division. I'm currently heading up a team that's called Strategic Credit Risk Management. And I've been very involved over the last three years in the bank's implementation of IFRS 9. And when we talk about IFRS 9, we specifically mean the modeling aspects of it, um, building impairment models for the bank. And I guess that's the main topic of this panel discussion. Okay, thank you very much, Karsten, uh, for that introduction. Um, then we move on to Nico. Yes, um, Nico van Staden. I've been at FNB for the last 10 years, mostly in the credit risk management function. I looked after the credit risk uh, management for the credit card portfolio, and that's where I got involved in the IFRS 9 project. I'm by no means an expert in IFRS 9. Um, I see there are a lot of other people in this room that, that have much dirtier hands than I do. Um, but I guess I understand the, the credit risk value management chain quite well and how IFRS 9 fits into that. Thank you very much. Uh, um, now let's have Uh Thank you, Michael. Uh, my name is Gerrit van Eck. Um, I studied actuarial science. I have an actuarial background. And I started my career at First National Bank uh, for four years. I briefly spent some time at Zurich General Insurance, and I've been at KPMG for just over five years now. Um, I've been luckily, or been lucky to be involved with a lot of the IFRS 9 reviews from both an audit perspective as well as um, implementation side of IFRS 9. And um, I also briefly spent some time in, in Russia when I just started with KPMG, um, but I've been back in South Africa for over three years, and most of that time has been spent on, on IFRS 9. Oh, thank you very much uh, for the introduction, um, Then, uh, Matthew? Uh, thanks, Michael. So, um, I'm an actuary, and I've been uh, working at Deloitte for about seven odd years now, I'm an associate director. Uh, in terms of IFRS 9, I've been involved with uh, projects across the spectrum, similar to uh, Gerrit, from uh, model implementations through, through to uh, validation and audit work. Um, I think working across the African continent has been one of the interesting things for me, working around IFRS 9, 
uh, and as well as with some of the some of the institutions in the shadow banking sector that often get overlooked in some of these big discussions. From an industry perspective, I've been involved with writing some of the industry guidance as part of the cycle PPG on the forward-looking information uh, and, and some work around a significant increase in credit risk. And those are two of the, the kind of the most complex components of FRS9. Oh, thank you very much, uh, Matthew. Um, so um, as for most of you may not know me, I'm also an actuary. I have been involved in some IFRS 9 work, but probably not to the same extent as the other uh, people, the experts sitting here, and some of the guys within the audience. Um, you know, my first encounter with uh, IFRS 9 was in 2014 uh, through Pravin, Pravin Bura, I think he's in here. I think he's in here. So, you know, that was my first encounter when we were really still working on um, developing the banking subject. And uh, that's when uh, the final IFRS 9 was published. We had really followed it, you know, since 2013, but not very closely. So when we had this IFRS 9 published, we really started to talk more about it. And uh, we realized the, the scope of work required and the fact that uh, the actuarial skill set could be very useful. Uh, so without making an assumption, I just wanted to just give a, a brief introduction of uh, this IFRS 9. Um, and my starting point is uh, the International Accounting Standard 39, um, which was a, a in existence at that time, um, which really um, um, uh, the method of provisioning for, uh, uh, for losses, for credit losses, was more an incurred approach, where... Uh, losses were only provisioned after there is evidence that, you know, uh, there is a loss. And that was actually considered to be probably a little bit too late. And I think it's something that uh, came as a result of the financial crisis of 2008. Uh, now, IFRS 9 um, then came about as a result of a, a lot of work by the International Accounting Standard Board. Um, this uh, uh, method of provisioning for expected losses is more um, it's, it's a more forward-looking uh, method for provisioning, um, and um, it's considered that uh, you recognize losses a bit earlier than what International Accounting Standard uh, 39 was able to do. So in a nutshell, that's what it is. Um, and I think, you know, for those of you who probably want, uh, who, who probably do not have knowledge of uh, IFRS 9, I'll leave you to maybe as you listen to the experts, and after this you can always go and uh, research for yourself. So that's really just a, a brief introduction. Um, what we are going to do is we have got a set of questions that we are going to ask our panelists. Um, we said we are, let's concentrate on the practical aspects because IFRS 9 is already there um, uh, see, uh, from uh, accounting statements from January, is it January 1st, 2018. Uh, banks are required to report uh, on the basis of, of IFRS 9. So I think there, there have been implementation issues, there have been practical issues, there have been challenges, there have been lessons that have been learned, and that's why we called our panelists who have been involved in this implementation work so that we can ask uh, a few questions. I've got five questions here, and we'll be going around asking and discussing. After that, I think we have got 60, 70 minutes, right? Um, we, we are going to also have some time for uh, questions from the audience or even contributions based on your experience. So my first question, I think I'm just going to uh, start from Kasten. So my first question, uh, Kasten, is um, what has been your practical experience with implementation of IFRS 9 in banks? Yeah, I guess in a nutshell, 
I think it has been the biggest challenge for quants in banking since Basel II. So basically all the big South African banks introduced Basel II back in 2008, which also required a lot of modeling work, but I think IFRS 9 just took it to a completely different level, added complexity, I think uh, Matt um, referred to as bringing in forward-looking information. There's a so-called component, it's called um, significant increase in credit risk. We need to do a lot of modeling work around, and I think what you also need to consider is that impairments directly, directly hit your um, P&L. So that sort of changes the stakeholders within the bank that are interested in this. I think from a capital perspective, that comes from Basel II, your stakeholders are sort of interested. Um, they are measured on a capital consumption basis, but it doesn't directly hit their P&L. But when it comes to impairments, that's really affecting the bottom line, and that keeps CFOs awake overnight. And I think from a quant perspective, I think we were quite used to, to deal with our stakeholders, but I think with IFRS 9, um, this set of stakeholders has changed quite a bit, and we had to deal more with these CFOs, with these accountants, and it actually got a little bit more, or made our lives a bit more tricky. Um, and I guess, um, I think what's also important to mention is, I think everyone was on a steep learning curve during this development phase. There was not one market standard. If you read through the IFRS 9 framework, it's more principle-based. It's not like that you can follow rules 1 to 10 and you are done. You have to really apply your mind. You need to test different approaches. You will see that some will work. Others might create excessive levels of volatility for your P&L, and you have to basically go back to the drawing board. I think what's also, um, what is also an issue is that you can't just buy international expertise, bring in consultants from Europe, and they, and they come with some off-the-shelf solutions for your problems. That was not available. I think everyone in the world was on a steep learning curve. IFRS 9 um, was relevant for all major countries in the world, for all, for, um, for all, Indus, um, sorry, for all developed countries as well. So there was no market standard that could just be applied in this African context. And I, say, I think the same holds true for our auditors. I think they were also on a steep learning curve. Um, we as NetBank have Deloitte and, and KPMG as our auditors. And I think they also learned a lot during, during the initial audit. So I think to a certain extent, I think we had to train them because we did all the modeling work. I mean, they were not involved in the actual modeling work. They only came in towards the end and checked our models. Actually, we should have charged them for, for <laughs> teaching them. But, 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 but unfortunately, it was the other way around because they charged actually more compared to IS39 because the models were so much more complex and they had to bring in so much more, so, so many more people to, to actually do the audit work. So, and I think lastly, I think also, with IFRS 9, there was heightened interest from the regulator from Saab in impairments, I think, which was also not really the case under IS 39. So, so Saab, under um, the previous register of banks, I think, was also quite involved in setting up um, the framework. And we also had a lot of interaction with Saab, I think, for two consecutive years. IFRS 9 was the so-called Saab flavor of the year, and we had to train our board of directors in order to present our approach to the Reserve Bank, which I think was also very very strange experience for me just to sit with your, with your board of directors and train them on a very technical aspect of modeling and, and try to con, um, almost convert or translate it into layman's terms so that they, they are able to present it to the Reserve Bank. So I think it was also a good, good experience, particularly for me, to be allowed to do that. Um, and I think lastly, I think just the increased level of complexity, I think, I think, I think we'll get to it in some of the later questions around bringing this forward-looking information. So you really have to do a lot of modeling work. You go back, assess your historical data. You look, for example, in a home loans portfolio into what has happened in the 2008-2009 crisis, and you try to come up with a linkage between your actual default and loss behavior and macroeconomic data. 
which is not a requirement for Basel. Basel just looks at your sort of through the cycle probability of defaults and downturn loss given defaults and you're good. So as I said, I think the level of complexity under FS9 is, a, is at a completely different level compared to Basel. I think for Basel, you, you can survive with relatively simple approaches, adding a little bit of conservatism that makes your auditors and your reserve bank happy, but I think for IFRS 9, it's slightly different. Oh, thank you very much, Karsten, uh, for, uh, you know, uh, for uh, those perspectives. I mean, uh, clearly, you have been involved. Um, I'd like to hear from others, I mean, uh, Nico, um, maybe you had a completely different experience at uh, FNB. Kasten uh, is from NetBank, huh? so you probably had uh, a different experience. I'd like to hear the question again. What has been your practical experience with the implementation of IFRS 9 in banks? Okay, so I think the, the first time I heard of IFRS 9 or got involved in the IFRS 9 debate, um, it was back in middle 2015 uh, when I was called into the office of the CFO and he said, look, we need to do this thing. Um, and I need you to run a pilot product uh, implementation, um, specifically on the credit card uh, portfolio. So, so back then we decided, look, there's still a lot of uncertainty in, in terms of the interpretation of the standard. There's a lot of back and forth that we have to do between us and the auditors. So let's test and pilot this, this whole standard on two products in the bank. We basically decided let's go with a secured amortizing loan as a mortgage portfolio and then a revolving uh, product that's unsecured and, and that's where we got involved in the credit card space. I must say initially um, we were all very excited because I think IFRS 9 kind of brings together different components of, of the credit risk management um, value chain. Uh, you know it, it, it aligns nicely to the way you do capital modeling, it aligns nicely to the way you do pricing and risk appetite setting and for the longest time the IS39 standard kind of was misaligned with all of those concepts so it was it was confusing to business you know so you, you set strategy based on one methodology and then you report based on another methodology which confused the accountants and, and the business stakeholders um, quite a lot. So, so when we started with this process, we were very happy and excited, um, and I guess we, we quickly set up uh, a small little work team um, consisting of uh, accountants that, that helped us to interpret the, the framework, and then a couple of actuarial analysts that had to go and build the first generation models. That was kind of middle 15, I think by the start of 2016, we kind of had our ducks in a row and we started now building, right? So we started pulling data, started understanding what it means to, to get your data quality right, all of those kind of things. And by the end of 2016, we had our first model ready. Um, just to be informed that audit doesn't agree with our, with our approach, and then <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the head office folk also kind of changed their minds, and, and we had to start from scratch. Um, so we set out again and we started building and building and building. In the process, we lost two modeling teams um, because of project fatigue. And I think we actually managed to drag the model across the, the end line a month ago. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I guess the, the kind of practical experience I have is with, with implementing standards like this is interpretations change as you go because it's unclear. What I also realized quite quickly on in, in, in the journey is that the standard was written mostly for a kind of amortizing loan type of product. It's, it's very unclear when it comes to revolving products as to what does lifetime mean, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, because it's a perpetual product. So how do you model lifetime losses? 
Um, and, and we also realized that it's, it's maybe better to kind of figure out what you have to do a little bit earlier on than to just start doing stuff. Um, because it, it really took a lot of time and effort to get something across the line. Uh, also, part of, the, part of the fun was is to get to that answer that everybody is comfortable with. Um, because you start off, then you get to an answer, then everybody thinks, yes, it's the right answer. Then people start questioning, and then you go back, it's like, okay, maybe we need to revisit this. And eventually, I think we landed on an answer that most of the stakeholders were comfortable with. Um, and then the biggest part of the experience was how do you bring your business stakeholders and your products and, and your operations uh, along in, in, in this journey? And how do you make sure that everybody understands the impact it will have on their lives um, in terms of business process, you know, application of the thing? And then how do you influence any strategic decisions you have to make um, for future uh, type of business that you have to do. But I guess we'll spend a little bit more time on that when we, when we have that discussion. Okay, Good. thank you very much, uh, thank you very much, uh, Herit. Uh, sorry, uh, thank you very much, Nico. And I think, uh, so from a banking, from being within the bank, so you two gentlemen have been involved in the actual implementation. So I'm now going to ask um, uh, Herit uh, and, and then uh, Matthew. Um, you, you being from uh, KPMG and you being from Deloitte, um, the perspectives you actually had. So the same question. Mm -hmm. uh, what else would you add to the same question? What has been your practical experience with implementation of IFRS 9? And in fact, the fact that um, you were charging the people who were training you, for example. <laughs> yeah, so to, to comment on that, um, I remember having to upskill very quickly, um, both from an audit perspective as well as from an advisory perspective. It's expected that um, you can already speak and, and have all the answers around IFRS 9, um, whereas it was mentioned before, it was also a steep learning curve for us. Um, after that, we went into quite a period of more focusing on training, where we went out to a lot of clients to present training and also to initially start off with proposing to do a gap analysis. I think the challenge was really uh, convincing the CFOs that IFRS 9 would also be a project from their side, whereas initially they said, no, it's more on the credit modeling side. And when we presented and started training on this, it's almost like the stakeholders went through the phases of first going through denial and then, <laughs> and then, and then um, eventually reach, reaching an acceptance stage, also specifically once, once budgets started to be discussed and actually trying to explain how big we expect FRS9 to be. Um, we also had different experiences, whether we worked with Tier 1 or Tier 2 clients, where um, I think the big difference is a lot on governance. I'm also now talking about more recent times in terms of implementing the models and having more challenges um, in terms of gov governance, um, also where credit teams and finance teams don't always sit and work together. Um, we saw a lot of challenges there where it takes time to actually hand over the model, implement the model to go through validation, whereas with the tier two entities, we saw in some cases that things happened a bit quicker. Um, but then there was, in some cases, also a lack of governance on that side. So definitely challenges, challenges from, from both sides. But I must say it was um, definitely, it has been quite an interesting journey going through, um, through this opportunity of having both advisory clients where you have the opportunity of actually developing something yourself, looking at the data yourself. And from my personal perspective, I actually enjoy that a bit more. Um, and then also having the opportunity from an audit perspective to look at various different models, um, to review those models, and um, 
to also become an expert and have that opportunity to, to share your knowledge with other entities that you work with. Okay, uh, thank you very much, Herod. Uh, um, so, um, at least a slightly different perspective uh, coming from the outside, uh, validating, auditing the models. Um, now I'd like to hear from, uh, from you, Matthew, your experience. And Matthew uh, has presented at a previous webinar uh, on IFRIS 9 um, that we held, was it, uh, is it last year? Beginning of this year, I can't remember. Last year. Last year, okay. So let's hear from you, Matthew, uh, what has been your practical experience with implementation of IFRIS 9 banks. So let me start by uh, thanking Karsten for the patient tutelage over the years on IFRS 9. Um, <laughs> although, personally, I guess I haven't been that directly involved with either the NetBank or, or first train work from a, from a Deloitte perspective, so I feel like I'm, my hands are a little bit clean of that. Um, but, but I think maybe what I can add uh, into what the other guys have said is, I, I think when I talk about thinking about the challenges, I would think, you know, I guess, along the lines of uh, you know, systems, people, processes, and data. Yeah. Um, I think there's, all of them have, have had significant practical challenges. Um, and I, and I, um, you know, I guess where I've noticed that the most uh, across all of those dimensions is in the second tier banking space, um, the, the shadow banking sector, and the rest of Africa, where, where all of the challenges that you know, the, the likes of a, an FNB and a NetBank have had are, are quadrupled um, in some cases at some of these other institutions. Um, to the extent that there was, there's many there's many banks across Africa that still haven't bedded down the FS9 models yet, um, even even ones that were supposed to be implemented from the 1st of January this year. So from an industry perspective, I think that there's, there is you know, very very significant concerns around that. Um, even within the South African space, I think from a, from a Reserve Bank perspective, um, I think they wouldn't have necessarily been happy with perhaps the you know, the the timeliness of some of the implementations of the local banks. Um, so uh, the reasons for that, I think, are, are, are multiple, but, but, but data has definitely been a, a significant one there. Um, and then the people, the people aspect, I think, is an important one to think about from a process perspective um, and from an actual society perspective where, where the, um, the level of skills in the, in the industry isn't necessarily there, um, and, and, and certainly not with the level of experience to, 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 to actually build some of the models um, and, and to and to actually complete some of the, the complicated work that's required. And it goes beyond just actuarial, of course, because there's, there's lots of other clients working in, the, in these sorts of spaces. Um, but, but across the board, there has definitely been you know, a large skills gap that's, that's led to a lot of those debates. Okay. All right, thank you very much, uh, Matthew. Um, so, look, if, if, if I listen to that uh, first question, I think it actually effectively outlined um, uh, some of the challenges, some of the lessons I mean, if I look at the points I put here, there's a lot of complexity, you know, moving from Bezo 2, then now having these IFRIS 9 models, um, steep learning curve with a, whole, with a lot of you. Um, there was now need for judgment, application of judgment, lots of uncertainties in some areas on how to actually interpret the standard. And um, um, I've seen governance issues being raised and challenges, which, which this one is a very practical one, which is challenges of aligning credit teams with finance teams. You always find that. Um, and um, the level of experience, like you have mentioned, the, the, the level of expertise that's required is not necessarily really there. So if we're looking at uh, people in this room as, as actuaries, um, I suppose this is an area you probably even want to really look at. 
because IFRIS 9, uh, the work that's involved, I've been involved myself, I've looked at it, um, you can quite easily fit in and say when you work across or together with other professionals, not necessarily actuaries, and cross-learn from each other, we should be able to add a lot of value. So thank you very much, gentlemen. Um, I'm going to move to the next question. Um, and yeah, we still, we still have time, probably 40 minutes. I'm going to move to the next question, um, uh, which is a uh, number two question out of the four questions we have. Um, uh, Matthew, I'm going to start with you. Uh, this question is to do with the, the bank business models and profitability as a result of implementation of IFRIS 9. So what impact from a bank business model perspective and bank profitability perspective has IFRIS 9 had on operations of banks? So, so this is a practical issue uh, because naturally you're likely to see uh, implications on how banks do business or their business models and you're likely to see implications on profitability. So that's my next question. What impact from a bank business model perspective and a bank profitability perspective as IFRS 9 head on operations of banks? So I start with you, Matthew. Sure. Uh, so in terms of the, the, the operating model, I think the, the key thing that we've seen is uh, a, a large integration across the different uh, functions. So your finance and your risk functions um, and some of those other support functions that are related to those have had to, have had to work a lot closer together than they have historically. So, so often on, on, the, on the risk side, you would have had a team like a credit risk team or a larger risk team doing you know, building models in isolation of finance. Um, and, and in some cases, in a small institution, uh, the finance team would have actually been responsible for the I-39 impairments. So in this situation, the, the risk teams have actually you know, had to essentially start com uh, uh, to, uh, sharing their work or, or essentially integrating them, their, their work with what the finance teams would have been doing. Yeah. Um, and, and I think you know, I think there's definitely come, you know, been, been uh, some some challenges, some learnings around that. Okay. Um, I, I think maybe just I think that gets to be the key thing I want to highlight on that on the on the operation side, on the profitability side. I think we haven't necessarily seen the full effect coming through yet. There's obviously the direct cost of FS9, which has been the increase in provisions that have to be held, and then the knock-on effect that that's had on capital. Um, so typically, uh, we've seen you know, increases from so, so really on the impairment number, increases that could be close to say 10%, but out to maybe 300 or 400% on certain portfolios that were from an IS39 perspective, either you know, very, very, uh, you know, not not, uh, not very well kind of uh, managed or, or modeled previously, uh, but then also with some of the complications of the standard increasing, increasing what the impairment should be. Um, but I think the indirect cost that's also interesting is, is, the, is kind of links to the people aspect of the additional amount of teams required to actually build, implement, and maintain these models going forward, as well as, as, as Carson alluded to, the additional cost of actually auditing and validating these models. So you could kind of consider the development teams, implementation teams, validation teams, and external audit teams, and there's probably others as well, but all of these areas have had to, have had to grow just to be able to cope with the amount of extra work that's come through. So there's still been quite a significant indirect cost. And then part of that is also, I guess from a business perspective, the, the time that's, that one takes in focusing on FS9 is potentially detracting from other areas of the business, so, uh, potentially more strategic areas of the business that haven't had the same focus that FS9 has had over the last couple of years. Okay. No, thank you. Uh, uh, thank you very much. Um, I thought that my voice is loud enough, but clearly it looks like uh, some people are not hearing me. I'll try to speak to the mic. 
Okay, so thank you very much, uh, Matthew. Um, I think uh, on the same on the same question. So Matthew has highlighted uh, issues such as um, integration uh, of credit and finance aspects and uh, issues of uh, cost implementation. And you said you haven't yet seen um, uh, the the full impact on on profits. That's probably still coming through. And I suppose maybe with time, banks will adjust as they go because there's probably still a lot of learning. Um, but I would like to hear views from, uh, from you, uh, Harris, um, the impact from a bank business model perspective and bank profitability perspective that IFRIS 9 has had on operations of banks. Yeah, so I think Matt summarized it quite well in, in most areas. I can maybe add on the operational side um, since there are now higher costs of retaining people and getting the experts in, maybe um, refining those roles and looking at integration within the bank could then assist with reducing those costs Then aligning um, things such as the macroeconomic stress testing um, on the provisioning side with your capital side as an example of that. Um, on, on more on the profitability side, um, I do agree that we haven't really seen the, the full impact of that coming through yet. Um, there might be in the future a situation where the balance of credit portfolios are maybe looked at if that should be rebalanced, uh, maybe the contractual terms of products. The reason I say that is because of the fact that things like um, the lifetime definition of a product now plays a bigger role um, in, in the provisioning. So that, that's really my view in terms of um, some items that might need to be, to be looked at in the future. Um, but again, that is something that will be refined going forward. Okay. No, th thank you very much uh, uh, for that, uh, Herit. Um, Nico, uh, as we go to, uh, to Kasten, so we start with you, Nico. On the same question, now within the bank, what have you seen? Um, impact from a bank business model perspective and bank profitability perspective. Um, so from an operating model, definitely... Obviously, you can, you can note the, the time it takes up in your diary um, as to how much time you spend on this topic and how many debates you have on the topic with senior stakeholders, internal stakeholders, etc. I think uh, both of the guys to my left, they made reference to teams working closer together, especially finance and credit. Um, but definitely also data and, and system guys are, are being pulled into this thing because you need to be, you know, BCBS compliant and pull data lineage through ac across all of these things. So, so you need to make sure that your data infrastructures and platforms and all of those things support um, the maintenance and the, the, the operational rollout of these models. And with that comes another cost component um, to it. In terms of business uh, kind of operating model product um, development, strategic, uh, you know, portfolio balancing. Yo, we went through hours and hours, if not days worth of debates as to what should we do and, and what will the, you know, the bottom line impact be of IFRS 9. I mean, obviously there's a day one impact on your, your provision, your balance sheet provision, yeah. um, and then there's an ongoing impact going forward. Um, the one thing that, that do stand out quite, uh, quite evidently is that new business strain will start showing a lot quicker in, in the process. So as you originate new loans, obviously on day one you take a, at least a 12-month outcome um, on, on that loan's uh, future loss. And then as they either trigger, uh, trigger you know, sicker or, or, or 
um, uh, going to arrears, you start taking lifetime losses. If you compare that with if uh, IS39 today is on, on a new loan, you basically take no, no very little provision um, because there's no you know, signs of, of the loan deteriorating. So your day one cost of, of originating a new loan is significantly different. Um, on the revolving product side, especially because there you start providing on a facility instead of a, a balance, right? So if you think of a credit card or of a, um, a overdraft on day one, there's no balance. Um, there's also no margin that you earn on that product. And as the customer starts drawing down, you start earning margin and, and, and income. But now, uh, on IS39, you would have gradually raised a, a small provision as that balance increased. On IFRS 9, on day one, you take you take the knock on the full facility. Obviously, if you think about it, the, the, the true economic loss of profit doesn't really change. It's just the, the timing of the cash flow that changes. So, so you must be careful not to go and rehaul your whole business to, to take this into consideration because the true economic profit, um, if you price accurately and if you set your appetite accurately, doesn't really change. It's just your timing of it. Um, but, but from a portfolio management point of view, that, that does complicate the life a little bit because if you are in a fast-growing or new, fairly immature portfolio, that cost will be substantially higher. Um, and, and if you don't have other revenue lines that can offset that cost, it's going to be very difficult to explain that um, in the market. I guess the other thing that we're also not sure about is how do we run this thing on a day-to-day -day basis going forward? Um, I mean, we've, we, we haven't gone through a, through a cycle where, for instance, let's say the outlook on the economy changes, suddenly you have to increase your, your provisions. Um, how do you have those debates? You know, how does that debate go with senior management? You know, how comfortable are we with the economic forecasts that, that our economists put out? So I guess that, that will start playing out as we mature in this journey. And then also, I think from, from an industry point of view, how do you start comparing banks? Because I think our analysts have become very used to looking at impairment ratios, NPL ratios, you know, across the different credit providers. But now suddenly everything's changing again. So, so is FMB's interpretation of lifetime different to, for instance, another bank? Um, uh, your, your NPL ratios will change. So I guess that will also now start playing out. Is how, do you, how do you compare the different indus uh, uh, players in the industry with each other? Um, and, and what sort of questions will come out of that? Um, otherwise, I think it's it's fairly, you know, business as usual. We're not making massive changes to operations and, and, and products that we're doing. I think it's just making sure we understand those those revenue lines and, and when they hit your income statement, um, that that you're not surprised by it. Okay, All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Nico. Um, you know, some some interesting issues being raised here on new business train strain being recognised a bit earlier. Yeah, but uh, another important point I've seen here is only the timing of cash flows changing. And I think that's quite important. It would quite be interesting, you know, when we test fellowship uh, exam for our actuaries here. Uh, this is quite an interesting um, area for examining. So those who are still writing exams, watch out. Um, anyway, um, so I, I would like to, to come to you, Karsten. Um, same question, um, just to add on to what the other gentlemen have said the impact IFRS 9 has had on bank, bank business models and bank profitability. I guess it's also important to mention that First Rand is only coming out to the market now, so, <laughs> so only three of the four banks that actually went live on, on First Gen, and you might have seen some scary numbers coming 
into the market, I think um, I think we raised two to three billion additional of uh, additional balance sheet impairments. I think um, EPSA and Standard Bank actually a little bit higher than that. So it seems like very scary numbers, but I think, it, as Nico said, is the true loss on a loan doesn't change. I mean, the client doesn't pay you more or less um, whether there's an IS39 accounting standard or IFRS9 accounting standard. So you do, the client doesn't care, so you will receive exactly the same cash flows after a default event that you received before. So, so it's just the timing of when you have to raise yep. um, impairments, and you, throughout the lifetime, you typically have to hold on average higher portfolio impairments, which makes it slightly more costly to, to do business um, in the banking market. But I, I guess I agree, it's still a bit early to come to, to um, definite conclusions of what will be the impact on the individual products, whether we have to increase prices in order to um, restore the original profitability under IS39. But my gut feel is that the impact will not be that dramatic. So if you look at the level of portfolio provisions that we have to hold against performing loans, it's not that high that it will have a massive impact on your risk-adjusted profitability. Um, so I think that's, that's important to note. Um, then um, I guess I can, I can definitely agree with the observations that um, there's a lot more close collaboration between risk finance areas, quant teams, accounting yeah. teams within the banks. Yeah. Um, I think in particular from a net bank perspective, we have also aimed to more centralize the impairment calculation. So there was a big system development in order to house all these different models um, in a nice centralized framework. And I guess secondly, I think there's also a lot more effort um, that, that, that will affect um, the need for quants going forward in order to validate these models, to audit these models, to maintain these models. And I think that the problem in this country is that the availability of quality resource in the market is not great. And I don't foresee that to change anytime soon. So, so there will be a huge demand. I think it's good, good for us, ones for our salaries going forward. But, but, I, but I guess that is the reality. Okay. No, thank you very much, uh, Karsten. Um, uh, your uh, last comment is particularly interesting to us. Um, as the actuarial community. This is definitely a new area for us. I think a, a lot of us haven't yet even realized how much uh, we could get involved and uh, add value. So the issue of skills, I think uh, what you need to be doing is you need to be talking to us. I'll give you my number uh, after this <laughs> um, so that we can show you that there are skills. There are a lot of unemployed people who, with those skills. Maybe they just need some bit of training, but um, the skills will be there, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. But thank you very much. Um, I think I quite like um, you know, the, the conversations we are having, very practical. Um, I would like to, I think we have had uh, about 35 minutes now, 35 to 40 minutes. I would like to move to the third question. We, we still have got three other questions. I think uh, the last three questions are probably a bit shorter uh, than the, the first two. But I would like to move uh, our conversation to the third question which is probably more interesting to uh, the actuarial modeling people. The question is, um, from a modeling perspective, what have been the key challenges and how have you attempted to resolve them? So from a modeling perspective. Um, so this accounting standard, if it's nine, expected credit losses is equal probability of default, lots of modeling in there, lots of statistical models, um, that you need to come up with, uh, multiplied by the loss given default and multiplied by the exposure, um, uh, by the, uh, exposure at uh, default. So I would like to know, 
for you to share with the audience what have been the key challenges and how have you attempted to resolve them from a modeling perspective. So maybe, uh, maybe I should start here in the middle. Um, I think that would work better. Let's, let's start there. You probably do a lot of modeling or validation of it. So we start uh, with you. Sure. So the modeling, the modeling concepts are, are one thing, but I think the bigger challenge really is around the data available for modeling. Um, you can come up with really nice um, conceptual ideas, how to model, and within that, the biggest challenges that we see is now calculating a lifetime provision, but again, that ties back to your data, and also how data changes over time, how that data could have been captured in the past, um, but definitely in terms of, of the modeling components, the lifetime component is very difficult, as we said earlier, um, with a contractual home loan of 20 years, Yes, we know that contract will last for 20 years in terms of the contract. We might sometimes look at the behavioral um, side of, of that contract, rather focus on that for lifetime. Um, but at the end of the day, um, requiring that, that vast amount of data. The other concepts that, that are also challenging definitely um, is including forward-looking information in the models, um, which would be your macroeconomic models, um, especially also consistency within the South African industry. Um, one economist's view might be very different to another. So how do you then compare, as, as Nico said earlier, also how do you compare one set of results to another set of results? And um, the, the last point I'll just touch on is basically um, the significant increase in credit risk, yeah. which has also been, been quite a challenge because IFRS 9 requires us to look at um, the, the risk as we brought that account onto the book. And as that reporting date, has that risk changed or not? So in terms of being in arrears for 30 days past due, it's a bit easier and that's also the backstop, backstop to say, look, this, this account has deteriorated and we'll move this account to a stage two, which would then mean a lifetime provision. But accounts that haven't uh, missed any payments are, and that are not in arrears, how do you actually identify which accounts have deteriorated? And again, with tier one banks, maybe having behavioral scores available on the capital side, that can be leveraged off or if there's bureau information historically. But then when we look at our tier two banks, again, it becomes a huge challenge with, with no data being available. So definitely we, we've had some challenges and in most cases, um, assumptions are made um, to try and cater for a best estimate. And the idea is then to remediate data going forward, try to capture more data and then develop um, methodologies based on data as, they, as, as it then progresses and comes through. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, Herit. Uh, so so um, uh, the, the, the point you have made, um, which makes comparison of uh, banks difficult, is definitely coming up again. I mean, it has been said earlier, and you are repeating the same point now. So I, I suppose the analysts will have to be a bit uh, careful to actually understand um, what the numbers mean, how they've been arrived at. Uh, I suppose that's... That's another key area that um, we are going to find the, uh, people having to, to change in the way they approach uh, the analysis of banks. Um, I would like to go to, to Kasten on, on the same question. Have you faced uh, any different issues uh, from what uh, Herit has just discussed right now? Yeah, I, I guess every bank faced plenty of modeling issues. Yeah. Um, I think the way how we 
approached it is that we focused a lot on backtesting, on modeling, on, on backtesting of model results to basically assess historically what would have been your loss expectation on a particular loan and how did it play out. So we put a lot of reliance from a quality assurance and validation perspective on the outcome of, of model backtesting. Yeah. So I think that, that was, I think, our key approach of, um, of how to deal with these modeling challenges. I think, um, I think as Gerrit also alluded to, um, there are certain aspects of the standard where you have to apply your own interpretation, and to my mind there are um, probably three key areas. The one is a significant increase in credit risk, and I think we will only probably find out after, after half-year reporting of how the different banks have approached this, but this can really be a key trigger of how or what your eventual impairment level will look like. So if you are more conservative, you put more um, accounts into stage two, you have to raise more provisions and hence holding higher um, coverage ratios. Um, so I think there is a lot of uncertainty, at least, at least with us, of how the other banks approach this, and I'm, I'm foreseeing a lot of alignment and benchmarking going to happen going forward in order to, um, to align better to the other banks. I think similar things have happened under Basel. I think everyone looked into the pillar three disclosures of the other banks, checked what kind of risk rates or RWA the other banks were reporting, and then if we came out higher, we would have come up with a strategy of how to, to reduce RWA. Um, then the other aspect, I think, we, um, I think um, Nico also alluded to it um, in terms of the lifetime interpretation. I think there's a lot of uncertainty of how other banks are approaching this. Um, the standard is very vague of what banks should be doing there. Um, there's, not, there's definitely no, no benchmark, to my mind, in the market available. We went through a few surveys over the last two years, but I think the outcomes were also quite different across the different banks. Um, so, as I said, I think still great uncertainty, and I think if you look at coverage ratios for credit card portfolios and, and other fluctuating facilities, we will see, I think, relatively big discrepancies between the different banks in the market. And then I think lastly, which, I mean, to my mind was at least uh, the biggest topic at, at NetBank, was around um, write-off definitions. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I guess we have probably some, some guys from our unsecured lending competitors in the room. I guess it's also a big role for them. So under IS39, I think um, the write-off or point of write-off when you eventually, for, from an accounting perspective, get rid of a loan was not that well defined. And I think there was, on the one hand, there was great discrepancy between the different banks. And I think secondly, in this African banking market, there was also a historical push by the Reserve Bank for banks to be a little bit more conservative. So to, to write off assets a little bit earlier than one potentially should. And I think it's, it's, it's actually the exact opposite trend of what you see in Europe. I think if you've followed the media, I think countries like, like Italy, they're building up big non-performing loans portfolios because they tend to write off a lot later than we are. On the other hand, if you write off a lot earlier, then you start calling the client, sending SMS, and, and he starts repaying you. And that's the so-called post-write-off recoveries that comes through on your income statement. And that's quite a material number, I think, for all the big four banks. And I think there have been a lot of discussions with our auditors, with other audit companies, and I think there is not yet a clear market standard. I think if you read through um, some of the Canadian banks' disclosures, they went, they went live a little bit earlier than us. Um, I think they're always referring to that they didn't actually change the write-off definition, and they're still reporting significant post-write-off recoveries. So from our perspective, there's still a lot of uncertainty. I think there was not really one opinion from, from the market or from the auditors. So I think that was clearly one of our biggest challenges. And obviously, that's, it creates a bit of a risk for us that if we didn't go in 
conservative enough that we would have to raise additional impairments if we have to change our right of definitions going forward. Or vice versa, if we went into conservative, we can then release impairments through the income statement. Okay, no, thank you, uh, thank you, Karsten. I, I mean, the issue of uncertainty is still coming through from what you're saying. Application of judgment becomes very important uh, in whatever you're doing. Um, so I think uh, so similar issues. Um, so I'm going to move to you, um, Matt, and then um, after Matt, then we're going to hear from you, Nico, and then we move to our last two questions. So, so Matthew, on the same question um, in terms of uh, uh, modeling, you know, from a modeling perspective, the challenges you have faced and how you have attempted to resolve them. Uh, banks testing has been mentioned as one of the uh, things that banks do. So in, in almost every modeling exercise, back testing does help um, in, in refining your models. So I want to hear from you other perspectives you might be having. Sure. So, so, I mean, I think in the one concept to always remember the models is that every model is wrong. It just depends by how much. So, you know, you, you'll, so the backtesting obviously helps you to get as close as possible, but you will always, is it, you know, there's always just a model. So there's always a necessity for, for, you know, for, for, for expert judgments and management overlays um, potentially around, around, you know, all of the um, difficult and challenging areas of the models. Um, I think one point that I can add that, that the guys haven't covered yet is one of the, one of the other challenging areas that we've experienced, um, and, and, and particularly something that I think has affected a lot of um, the subsidiaries of the large banks across Africa and then other uh, pure African banks, where they have a, um, where essentially the government bonds and treasury bills and other um, sovereign instruments needed or, uh, because of the classification changes shifted under uh, IFRS 9. Um, and one of the challenges you have there is what type of a probability of default can you associate with some of these uh, sovereign governments? Yeah. And, and, and the challenge for a lot of the guys is that previously, uh, under a fair value measurement, they were holding almost, um, essentially they were holding them essentially fair, you know, at, a, at, a, at a value very close to its face value. So, so effectively reflecting that there was almost no impairments against them. Um, but in the IFRS 9 world, even if you're putting it in your stage one bucket and you're only looking at 12 months, you still need to consider what is the 12-month PD for the likes of a Zimbabwe or a Mozambique. Um, Mozambique defaulted in 2016. Zimbabwe hasn't had a, had a, you know, a, a formal global rating for, for several years. Um, but, but for banks in those countries, what I found dealing with them is that the, it's, actually, it's actually quite a contentious issue for the, for the reserve banks themselves where they find it quite offensive for, for a bank to be going to them and saying that, like, we're going to be holding, you know, we, we're assuming a 50% default rates against you. Um, so it's actually, so the, it's almost, you know, you would think from a risk management perspective that those, those central banks would actually be, be comfortable that the banks are holding provisions, but um, it's, it's, um, it actually creates a risk for them because it almost creates instability in the banking system where, where the banks, if the, if the banks in that country are actually, you know, on their own disclosure showing, showing such a large default risk against, you know, against their own central bank. Um, it's it's quite interesting, um, so 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 not one that's actually had a uh, I would say has a proper resolution at this point. I think where it's been well, where it's been easy to deal with in South Africa, the um, subsidiaries uh, as a percentage or you know, in terms of materiality for the large South African banks is it, so small that it hasn't really caused a big problem for them. But but for for African banks that are only in Africa, it's a, it's a much bigger issue and, and still something that's a bit of a challenge. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Matthew. I, I think. Um, apart from the more similar points, this issue of uh, uh, sovereign assets held by banks is quite a, yeah, that's quite a, a big issue. And all the points you have mentioned, I uh, actually have also encountered in practice. 
um, the central bank is the regulator, but then you are saying I need to reserve, and then they are saying, but what do you mean? Do you, do you think I'm going to default? You know, is, is that what you mean? So that's quite a practical issue. So yeah, thank you for raising that. Um, um, I move to you, Nico, uh, on that uh, same question um, before we move to our last two questions and, and before we take uh, questions and comments from the floor. Uh, I really think we should maybe send the mic through the crowd because they, people in this room, struggled with all of the technical issues and the data issues and the cleaning up of, of all of these issues. Um, I think we also definitely spent a lot of time on, on a significant increase in credit risk. What does that mean? Um, we spent a lot of time on lifetime and then we spent a lot of time on write-off definition and, and what is that right point to, to do. Um, and I really hope that our audit friends pay attention to what the banks in Canada are doing. Um, <laughs> because uh, obviously on, a, on an unsecured product you prefer to, to write off earlier um, as to you because, because you take your pain earlier, it's quicker to to get out of a cycle, it's, it's quicker to take the medicine up front earlier, and by building up big NPL, you know, balances and, and, and books, there's a significant model risk that sits there, because if you get the model wrong, you know, it's a big impact to the income statement, whereas as if you just recognize, you know, post right of recoveries, it's, it's, a, it's a lot cleaner, and definitely I think a lot of the unsecured credit providers prefer that. But that being said, um, a lot of debate as to, you know, when should you stop uh, recovering and when should you write off and how does that play into your LGD models. So we went through several iterations of LGD models to, to, to come to a right answer there and, and I guess it's, it's, it's a bit of a um, you know, middle ground that we found between us and, and, and the audit partners if both parties are, are equally unhappy um, then, then I guess we found the right thing. Um, in terms of seeker, so uh, from a retail point of view the question is Seeker is a, is, a, is a concept that's really, if, if you think about it, plays more into the corporate wholesale space. You know, if, if you look at a company, there are clear signs that they are deteriorating. Let's start raising provisions as we go. But when you think of a retail portfolio with millions of accounts playing out there, how, how do you do this? So how do you do this at a large scale at a, in an automated fashion um, so that your models can run? And, and we had lots of debates as to what is that significant increase in, in credit risk and, and how do we benchmark it or, or yeah. what methodology do we follow to get there? Some of the practical issues that we, that we ran into on some of the revolving portfolios, I mean, some of the accounts have been on book for 40 years. Um, you don't have a credit score for them when they were originated. So, so somebody in a branch looked at the, at, at, at the WMI and he said, you know, well, I think you're good for credit, let's give it to you. Um, so, so how do you compare you know, his current credit status to something like that. So we had to be very practical in, in those type of examples as to know maybe use the behavioral risk score or the very first behavioral risk score you see for this customer as a, a starting point. Um, also, do you tie it to pricing? Do you tie it to risk appetite? Oh, what do you do about this thing? Because yeah. it's, it's very judgmental and it's going to be interesting to see how other, other people interpreted it. Um, on lifetime, yeah. Yo, there, there we've been through several iterations. Um, is, it, is it, you know, do you make sure that you, you've got 95% of defaults that, that you see them within that lifetime? Is it 80, is it 90, where do you pick it? What do you do with accounts that, that increase their limits? Is that a new event? Is it part of the customer's life? 
How do you trigger those events um, if, you, if you go into a new pricing option? So we had to go through all of those iterations and make sure we understand exactly what it means and, and also get our audit partners across the line um, so that we can agree on those things and move forward. Uh, yeah, and then I, I guess uh, modification losses, how do you account for it? I mean, the banking systems aren't set up to, to identify those modification losses. So you kind of have to build it into the model, build it into the process, find operational processes to start accounting for it. Um, and then some of the other things is, is, is the language between the accountants and, 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 and the analysts. We had to find a common means. We had to start understanding each other what it means. How do we report on these things? Um, in, in, in your management statements, you know, how do you treat accounts that move from one segment, for instance, in the bank to another segment, do you account for it or do you only account at the high level? So there's a lot of complexity that sits within the bank that we had to sort out internally um, for us to understand and to get onto the same page. Okay, no, thank you very much, uh, Nico. Um, and all of these are practical issues. Um, if I am to repeat those issues that you have, uh, uh, that all of you have alluded to, data availability, how it has been recorded, you know, historically it might not have been in the right format uh, that you wanted, and you speak of uh, forward-looking information, you know, the judgment that's required in that. You spoke of significant increase in credit risk. What is that? And, and you uh, rightly, correctly pointed out um, um, retail portfolios versus uh, um, corporate portfolios and how difficult it can be with millions of accounts on the corporate portfolios. Um, definition of write-off um, that has been mentioned, um, uh, I think it was, it, it was Kasten. So there are a whole lot of practical issues uh, to, to deal with. Uh, so so IFRIS 9 is quite, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's quite an area where a lot of work is required and a lot of uh, thinking goes into it. Now, the last two questions, how we are going to deal with them is, so we're going to go to the audience. I'm going to read the questions. They are quite straightforward. Probably would have taken you 30 seconds to answer. But as you answer uh, questions from the audience, just try and incorporate in there. So the, the fourth question, uh, which you have already touched on when you were speaking, how do you view actuaries and their skills in IFRS 9 implementation within banks? So that's more straightforward. Um, and the, the last question I was going to make is really open-ended. What other comments would you wish to make regarding IFRS 9 and implications on banks? Now, those two questions, I think the best way to deal with them is let's now engage the audience. Let's have questions coming from the audience. And as you answer, um, we, you just try and include them. Because I don't think, um, you know, uh, I don't think uh, answering them individually will probably add value to us. Okay, so I would like to, how many minutes do we have, Ricard? Uh, So we've got 20 minutes, so let's say we've got 15 minutes, and then we just leave uh, five minutes for uh, handing over to the next speaker. So, so we have 15 minutes to take questions from the floor or contributions or comments. So I now invite questions to our panelists. All right, so we've got one question there. Uh, Dr. Bears, um, is there another question? And Ania there. Second question. Right, no problem. You can go. Um, I'm interested. Um, sorry, I forgot the name. Uh, the representative from KPMG. I think you may see a lot of different uh, submissions. And what I'm wondering about, um, I recently saw 
IFRS uh, 9 process for a, a somewhat small bank in an African country. What is, in your mind, uh, a level where you overdo simplifying assumptions, where you aggregate too much and um, you simplify too much? Did you reject some? And um, on that basis, what are you allowed at, uh, let's say, at the minimal level? And what is, what did you see that's really ugly and too simplified? Now, thank you for the question. So, definitely, we do consider, um, well, within South Africa, tier one banks um, versus tier two banks, knowing that a tier one bank could, well, or the fall of a tier one bank could potentially have a greater impact in the market, and also um, from the standard stating that um, undue cost and effort. So, depending on firstly what is available um, at the bank or the credit lender, we would definitely consider that. Um, and then further than that, um, having more simpler approaches, definitely in the rest of Africa, we have seen more simpler approaches and we have accepted more simpler approaches, but then we switch over to focus more on governance in those cases. So where you are saying, look, we don't have information to compare this specific account to origination, we would then try and focus more on setting up a proper credit committee where they would review the accounts um, to make sure that they do still flag those properly. In terms of um, rejecting um, certain methodologies, yes, we have definitely had many red findings in a lot of our reviews where we said, look, clearly there is more information here or this specific topic was not addressed even at all or not thought about. And in those cases, we do try and work with the clients to get to a point where we feel that's acceptable in terms of the relative market. Uh, thank you very, thank you very much for that answer. Um, is there anyone else who wants to to add from the panel? I'll just add uh, just one point on that. Uh, the, um, the the BCBS actually wrote a useful paper that contrasted a simplified approach to to sophisticated approaches. So actually, as, as a point of reference, I think that's also quite useful because um, you know the, the standard is not really. It's, it is quite binary. You're either you're either you're either um, compliant or you're not. And the BCBS paper that talks about the, comparing the simplified and the advanced approaches, I think, is is one useful reference point in the industry that does give you a little bit of leeway on how, where you can go with simplified. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, thanks uh, for those answers. Thank you very much. Um, we now have uh, Anya. Uh, yes, it is Anya. Cool. Um, I'd also maybe like to add a comment to the question. And I think what people fail to realize from a banking view is that as auditors, we don't f accept or reject models. Our role is not a validation function as, as such. It's to assess whether the number that's stated on the financial, financial statements is, is the bank suitably provided. So if we have got areas of concern or um, gaps in the methodologies, gaps in understanding, we'd say, well, what could the impact be of these gaps? And does it breach the audit materiality thresholds that then the bank would have to raise provisions to allow for that additional gap? So I think there, there is a misconception of what we do um, as, an, as an audit support function, not necessarily as auditors. So that, that's just a comment from that perspective. Um, but I'd like to pose a question to the panel around backtesting. Um, so now with IFRS 9, we need to include forward-looking information and the integration of 
three, four, five scenarios with probability weights. So how would you then go, go about backtesting the forward-looking information while developing your models? Because it's no longer empirically based. And is it right to backtest in a way? Because EFRS 9 doesn't call for accurate measurements. It calls for objective, unbiased estimates. So if it's open to the panel, not particularly for any, any one person. Maybe for Carsten's, because he was alluding to backtesting a little bit more. <laughs> Carsten, there it is. Thanks, Anja. <laughs> um, I guess I would split the backtesting into two, two different aspects. I think models are developed based on actual macronomic data. I think that's how you should then perform your backtesting. Because otherwise, I think if, if you develop a model based on actual data and then you backtest it against historical forecasts, I think there's quite a likelihood that you will fail and you actually bring in another component that to Marmot you should backtest separately. So I think your question is more about how do you backtest your macronomic forecast that you then end up using in your macronomic model, uh, sorry, in your IFRS 9 impairment models, which I guess is a slightly more tricky question. I think you can, I guess, most banks would use an expected scenario as their base and probably put quite a significant weight against that scenario. And I think you can do, obviously, backtesting of that particular scenario against the actual outcome. And that, to my mind, would be one of your key performance metric of the quality of your economic forecasts. Um, I don't think that the market is already in a position to potentially backtest your four or five different economic scenarios and the corresponding weights. I think, again, I think we will see what, what banks are going to disclose where the banks will actually disclose their five different scenarios. I think you've, um, you might have seen in some of the British banks' transitional disclosure that they actually disclose some of the key metrics under different scenarios to the market. So, uh, so if that's going to be the market standard, then I think one can also do some nice benchmarking and see whether we, for example, use an extreme enough scenario as our worst-case scenario or, or the best-case scenario. But I guess there's still a lot of uncertainty of, of how this is going to play out going forward. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Karsten. Um, I'm assuming you have been answered. If not, maybe you have to follow up <laughs> later. Um, yeah. One question. Okay. All right. So there's one question there. Um, my question is for Matthew and Harriet. Um, with Everest 9 being more principle-based, how much do the methodologies used by the different banks differ? Yeah, so definitely we do see various different methodologies. And um, I think in the future, those, depending on, on regulation, uh, might be refined. But, but in short, we have definitely seen very various um, methodologies, sometimes with uh, similar or a, a result that is aligned to which, which one would expect. Um, but not overall, not a lot of lot of consistency. So maybe yeah, you know, just maybe I could add a little bit in that. Um, I think it depends on like the aspect of the models. So there's some there's some parts of modeling that where where they've come from like the browser side. So like a an EAD component is very stock standard, and you know that type of thing wouldn't change a lot. But where you do get a lot of variation at the moment is in the new in the new areas. So I think over time, and I think one of the realities is that just the the fluidity of of resources within the industry implies that everyone kind of lands up knowing more or less what's happening at that, you know, in the other institutions over time. Um, so you do kind of, I think, tend towards like a, 
kind of a, a long run a long run average where you, where you kind of get towards having similar models and methodologies but but at the moment there's actually really really significant differences around some of the kind of some of the new aspects okay now thank you very much uh, for giving those answers um, quite practical issues being raised um, thank you very much we have uh, okay one question there is that yeah, one question. Is there any other? Okay. Uh, so, guys, this is open to uh, for anyone to answer. Um, so, having built these models, uh, I just want to know uh, what is the appetite um, to articulate a framework to quantify model risk, if if it's necessary, I suppose. Okay. Um, has that question been understood? Or should, or should repeat I repeat it? Maybe repeat it. Okay. okay. So uh, um, you were mentioning the complexities around building this model and the uncertainties that are involved. Um, it does introduce its own risks, right, um, which I'm calling model risk at this particular juncture. And I just wanted to know, has there been a framework that has been developed in trying to quantify the risk associated with um, an incorrect model, should I say, so, or in, an inaccurate model. Okay, you got that? Yeah, I think from, from my side, again, the focus should be more on the governance of the models rather than, um, personally, I haven't really seen a framework for identifying model risk within IFRS 9, but that discussion has definitely come up with clients, um, whether those are audit clients or at, at advisory clients where we also don't want to overly complex um, or build an overly complex model at the end of the day. So I think that was more um, taken into account, not through a specific framework at the back end, but making sure that we do take account of that as we go through the model development phase, where we do review the components as they come through and to make sure that we find a good balance between complexity, data availability, as Carson said, backtesting and making sure that these models actually actually work at the end of the day, and then making sure that your governance process is in place. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, do you do you have anyone who wants to answer on that framework for quantifying model risk? Um, maybe just a quick observation from my side. So, so I believe the sole topic of quantification of model risk, I think, is still at an early stage, and to my mind. I think we should probably focus on, on doing something similar for more matured models like Basel models before we actually approach IFRS 9 models. I think we need to still build up a lot of um, learnings from IFRS 9 and see how these models operate on a monthly basis. What's the volatility in your stage, stage 1, stage 2 populations? What is the impact of your economic scenarios or changes in your economic outlooks before we approach sort of a third level of dimension to, to, this, to this modeling? Okay. I think so definitely we need to consider the risk in the models itself but for me the the most important thing is how transparent is this model and how easily can you you know explain it to to your stakeholders and and the management and on a on a month to month basis because for me in that there's there's a bigger risk um if we if we go overly complex then that that conversation becomes very difficult um, so, so we have to find this, this middle ground and this balance to make sure that we've got a robust model that we can explain and that we can translate to our stakeholders um, so that they can run the business as they're supposed to. 
Okay, well, thank you. I mean, uh, uh, Matthew said earlier that uh, all models are wrong. The only difference is to what extent, <laughs> to what level. Uh, but thank you very much uh, for answering that question. I think we only have got uh, really, yeah, two minutes maybe. So we take one burning question or comment. It has to be burning. It has to be like, it has to be asked or said before we close. I've got two. <laughs> we want one. Okay. Well, we are. It's one question with two. two parts. Is everybody happy with that? Um, so, kind of, I'm quite surprised at the comment that you said that FSI wouldn't really materially impact profitability. I don't work in the area, but like, it, it feels counter kind of intuitive that you have increased provisions. It's kind of you have to look over the lifetime. It, it just doesn't feel completely there for me. But maybe it's like my lack of my own understanding. But what I want to understand, kind of based on that, if profitability isn't impacted, or rather, rather if I kind of phrase it differently, if profitability is impacted, it'd be impacted over differently over different customer segments. So, for example, you see, you'll see kind of banks having a lower capability of providing credit to the SMEs, like to SMEs, etc. Is that kind of what's going to play out with that people, that SMEs, for example, won't be able to raise credit credit as readily as previously? So that's the first part. And secondly, maybe a bit more focused in the corporate and investment realm, but kind of when you consider the staging element, and kind of you spoke to it a bit, you guys spoke to it a bit earlier, um, where kind of when kind of a loan becomes non-performing, or kind of when you kind of go through kind of staging stage two, when you start contacting clients to kind of help them, perhaps kind of notify them they have to pay or help them kind of become credit worthy again. Um, specifically in the kind of corporate realm, do you foresee banks playing a much more active kind of credit management role? So you have relationship managers focused perhaps with credit risk speciality to get the guys back to, to kind of financial health. So those are my two questions. Okay, two questions that have been asked. Do you want them rephrased? Do you want them shortened? Um, or have you understood <laughs> them? <laughs> Should they be rephrased? So, in terms of the cash flow conversation, maybe we need to take it offline and we can uh, explain. Um, but definitely, in, in, in terms of a loan-by-loan -loan basis, I mean, you either pay or you don't, right? And if, 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 you, if you don't pay, we don't earn the revenue, the interest, et cetera, from the point you don't pay. So, so the economic loss is really the same, right? It's just as, as, as a matter of where do you start realizing and how do you start accounting for it. Uh, to be honest, I, I don't think, I think it's too early to, to say whether it will have an impact on, you know, SME's ability to raise or to apply for credit or the ability of the unbanked population to, to get access to credit. I think the, the, the Credit Act has a much bigger impact on, on, on those customers in terms of how we interpret credit acts and regulations around credit origination practices. Um, but, what, but we'll have to see it play out. This is my personal opinion. I, I, I think it's too early. Um, Sure, I'm, I'm not a corporate specialist, so I'm, uh, I'm going to be way out of my depth if I, <laughs> if I have to answer it correctly. But in my mind, the, uh, the practice of rehabilitating customers and, and having the conversations and restructuring the corporate debt is already in place. So I don't think it's a new thing. I think that already happens in, in most of the corporate banks and um, uh, it, it, it's in practice. It's now just how do you account for, for those conversations because if there's a restructure, I mean, you have to... To, to raise it and, 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 and to push it potentially to a new status or, or something like that. I don't know if there are any other views. Yeah, any views? 
I think I think just in, in very short, um, there's definitely scope to explore how we can manage corporate customers better or how we can look at um, managing the credit portfolios and maybe rebalancing those. But in terms of operationally, if that will work or make sense, that I think is still, um, still uncertain at this point. Okay. Uh, thank you very much uh, for those answers. Um, I, I think we can spend uh, the whole day uh, talking about IFRIS 9. I think there are a lot of issues to talk about. But I would like to take this opportunity to thank our panelists. I think there is a very uh, deep knowledge and experience that uh, we have just witnessed today. And in thanking our panelists, uh, we have got our tokens of appreciation. You can, you can go. Uh, so Kuzai is going to hand over some, I don't know what it is, but uh, it's definitely something you will like. <laughs> no, I'm okay. You have already decided not to, so. <laughs> so thank you very much uh, to, so Kasten, thank you very much uh, for coming through. And uh, to, is it Nico? Thank you very much, Nico. Herit, thank you very much. And uh, to Matthew, so thank you very much. guys, so thank you. Um, uh, that concludes my assignment for the day. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for the very engaging conversation, everybody.